Romans chapter 9 is where we are. I'm going to read um, just verse uh, 1 through 18. Uh, It says 1 through 29, but we're not going to make it that far. We're going to make it through 18, Lord willing. So grab your Bibles, grab your devices, grab whatever you have. Let's open uh, God's word together. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Who is God over all, blessed forever? Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of the God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Just quick show of hands. Um, Who would like to preach this text for me? I'm taking anybody right now who would like to come up and give it a shot. I'm totally open to that, uh, even though I've prepared. We're kind of hitting the climax of this series on sovereignty. We'll end it next week talking about the book of Revelation. And we wanted to root us in this issue of sovereignty. uh, Because obviously this is a year where we can feel like everything is so out of control. We need to know that there is a God who is in control, but obviously we get to a text like this and we're going to wrestle with it. This is going to be difficult for some of us, but we're a church that we don't want to avoid the hard things that are in scripture, the difficult things that are in scripture, but this is going to hit our sensibilities. And I'll tell you why. John Guest, who was a British preacher, he came over to America. He took a church in Virginia. 
And uh, he was in an antique store in Virginia. First weekend he was in the States, this Brit. And he started to look at all the signs and all the things. And he saw a sign, thus always the tyrants. And then he saw another sign. You know, you could buy that antique store. Big black letters, which was a theme of America. And it said this, we serve no sovereign here. And John said, how in the world am I going to teach these people about who God is? When that's in their psyche, that's in their culture. We serve no sovereign here, and yet we have a sovereign God. What we've been trying to do through this passage is show you sovereignty, but to soften it a little bit by showing you the doctrine of sovereignty through the eyes of people, through the eyes of Ruth, through the eyes of Job, through the eyes of Abraham, through the eyes of Philip last week, through the eyes of Larry and uh, Larry. That was Martha and Mary and Lazarus combined <laughs> together. Mary and Lazarus came out to be Larry in the service. I mean, right, right when you think you're like right in the gusto of preaching, something like that happens. Um, so Larry is not in the Bible, but if Mary and Lazarus had a kid, it would be Larry, which would be weird because they're brother and sister, but no, okay, nonetheless. So we tried to show you through the eyes of these people uh, what it looks like, what sovereignty actually looks like, and today we're going to see it through three different sets of eyes. Uh, through Paul, we're going to see the heart of God in sovereignty. Through Jacob, we're going to see the love of God in sovereignty. And then through Pharaoh, we're going to see the justice of God in sovereignty. Let's just jump right in. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps. Again, don't wrestle with me. Wrestle with Scripture. All I'm trying to do in this moment is teach you what Scripture uh, is saying. But in Paul, we see the, the heart of God. Now, here's the problem. Look at what it says in verse 4. He's... He's in anguish over these Israelites, these Jews, because they've had it all. They belong to the family of God. They've seen the glory. They've seen the covenants. They've been the outworking of the covenants. They've been given the law. They've had a chance to worship in the temple. Uh, they have all these promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and yet they've missed the Messiah. They've missed Christ. They've had all of the privilege, everything been given to them, and they don't see it. I like what J.I. Packer says. I'll just reintroduce to you again this concept of compatibilism, which means this theologically. There are scripturally ideas that look like they are opposites, but they're actually compatible. And as Packer says, man is a responsible moral agent, though he's divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he's a responsible moral agent. Those two things are together. So they had everything, but they still missed it. And here Paul says, that causes me so much anguish. Look at what he says. I have so much great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why would that be his response? Because he wants them to see the treasure of God. He wants them to see who Christ is. He desires for them to know who God is in Christ, and they're just missing it. They're missing the whole thing, and he doesn't know what else can I do. They've had it all. They've had the patriarchs. They've had the temple. They've had everything, and they're still missing it. It causes me anguish, and it causes me sorrow. And then look at verse 3. For I wish I were accursed and cut off from Christ. That is shocking, and that's the heart of God. I have such a deep desire for my friends to know the gospel 
that if I myself could be damned and cursed so that they would know the glories of who Christ is, I would make that deal 10 times out of 10. Do you have that heart for other people to see the gospel and the treasures of God? Paul's saying, I'm willing to be accursed and cut off. He's repeating this actually from Moses, who after the golden calf incident said, I would be willing to be blotted out of the book of life if they could only see the treasures of God. It's such a bold claim that he had to uh, kind of disclaim it in verse 1 by saying, I am speaking the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness that this is coming from a sincere place. This is not hyperbole for me. I would willingly be accursed if my friends and my neighbors and these Israelites and these Jews could, could know how good Christ is. That's the heart of God for people. And we see it in Paul. Why do I say it's the heart of God? Well, because 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord's not slow in uh, fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient with you, not willing any to perish but all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. In other words, in Ezekiel 33, and all throughout Ezekiel and other places in the scripture, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in that, God says. And I want all people, my desire is that all people would come to know who Christ is. I don't want anybody to perish. And that's the heart of God. Jesus came to save. He came for that bleeding woman who spent all she had on doctors and couldn't find any health, and he healed her and called her daughter. He came for that leper who was cut out of uh, the culture and the society because he had a skin disease. He came uh, for the man who was born blind. He came for the whores, and he came for the prostitutes, and he came for the tax collectors, and he came for all of them. He came not for the healthy, but he came for the sick. He came not for those that had it all together. He came for the lost. That's who he was. We see the heart of God in Christ, and that's who Christ was. He came to bring salvation through his sovereignty, and he accomplished everything that he needed to do. Not one has ever been lost. A hundred percent of those he was called to save were saved. And here's the difference between Paul and Jesus. Paul wishes he could be cut off. Jesus was. He was. Paul had that desire to be on the cross, but Jesus actually was on the cross. He was caught off from the love of the Father. He was caught off from union with him. He was cursed on the tree. He did all of that to himself so that we might know through him the treasures of the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit. So just first point application, you need, um, you need a new heart not just a new start. I watched this past week that cinematic masterpiece, Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> Had to take some 15-year-old boys to watch that together. And um, golly, those shows are just so predictable. I'm going to spoil it for you. But re- can you spoil a movie like that? You know how it's going to end. It would, that would assume that it was at one point unspoiled. Uh, like, oh, I have no idea how the, you know how the movie's going to end. But at one point, uh, one of the characters, I won't tell you everything, but one of the characters almost dies or just at their last moment. It looks like they're never going to come back. And then this device lands on their chest. I'm not going to go into everything. And basically, it's basically a defibrillator. 
and it like brings them back to life and they come back and they don't die and they win the battle. We love that stuff as Americans, don't we? We love that storyline. We see it all the they're on the it doesn't look like Tom Cruise is gonna get up. Oh, he gets up and wins. Amazing. Mission Impossible. Every movie is like that. James Bond, every movie. We love that. Like, oh, they're almost at their limit, and then they just come back. And we tend to think that's all we need. We just need a little shock to our systems. We need a new start. We just need a, a defibrillator to bring us back, and then we can take it from there. No, you need a completely new heart. And if you're in Christ, you have it. If anybody is in Christ, you're a new creation. See, sometimes I think we forget that. That you're actually a new creation now, and you can live that way. And you can remind yourself of that. No, I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a new heart. I have a spirit that lives in me. I can live differently. The power is already there. I don't need a defibrillator. I'm already woken up. I have this new heart in Christ and it's starting to match his heart as well, just like Paul shows us. And then we're going to see this transition. I don't know if any of you were uh, ever in debate class or debate club, but you know if you're in debate club, you know what you do. You, you figure out the other person's argument, and you learn it better than they know it. And then you make it better than they can make it. You demonstrate it better than they could ever make that argument, and then you defeat it. That's how it works. That's the whole trick. And so Paul knows, I know what you're going to do. I know down the road from this, you're going to have the question, is God fair? And so before we get to that, I'm going to precede that with saying, but God is love. Don't forget God is love. And then we'll get to the fairness issue. It's a brilliant passage of scripture. And so here we see Jacob and the love of God. First we see Paul in the heart of God. And then we see Jacob in the love of God. And look at what he says in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Because you and I are asking, well, if the Jews had everything, if the Israelites had all the promises, all the covenants, they had all the worship, they had everything, why didn't it work? Like, surely something's off. God's not doing something right. No, no, no. It's not like the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, they might have had all the opportunity, but they can still be condemned. Just like you and I can still be condemned. It kind of starts to go to the issue, what about the person that's never heard? The person in Madagascar. How could they possibly be held accountable for never having heard the gospel? A couple of things I'd like to say. First of all is this. If they've never heard the gospel, that's our fault, not their fault. That's because we're not on mission still for Christ. But also this, all of us, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, all of us have the sensitivity, this, this uh, sense of the divine. In Romans 1, all of us through natural creation can see enough to condemn us. And all of us know what it's like to know the right thing to do and not to do it. Condemnation and told of depravity is worldwide, every person who's ever been born, and we all know, and we just blow through those roadblocks. We could talk more about that, but that's not the full theme of this paragraph. Jacob, we see the love of God, because here we see Abraham, who doesn't look like he's going to have any kids, saying, look, you will be the father of many nations. And go out, get away from those city lights, look up at the stars, you're going to have more kids than all of those stars. Well, how? I'm not even, I, Sarah and I can't even get pregnant. Just trust me, by this time next year, you'll have a child. So he did. He had Isaac. Isaac married Rebecca. 
Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca. Then Rebecca had Jacob and Esau, if you remember that story. And that's where it says at the end, verse 12, the older shall serve the younger, just as it's written, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. And here's the shocking thing. The way this should have worked is the firstborn gets to run the family, the firstborn male in this day and time. That's the way it always worked. And now everything gets switched. And Jacob is the one who gets blessed. And maybe you think that's because Jacob is the good one. That's not even true. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was a deceiver. He was a conniver. He stole the birthright from Esau. Esau willingly went away to give him space. And then they were, they were going to reconcile, like William and Harry. They were going to reconcile at some point. And when they came back together, you know what Jacob did? He was afraid that Esau was going to fight them, not reconcile. So Jacob put all the women and the children in front so he would have to slaughter them first. <laughs> That's Jacob. God didn't love him because he was a great guy because he wasn't. We could argue the case that Esau was the more moral individual or the better individual. But Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. And our hearts respond this way to that. It's not supposed to work that way. It's not, it's, I don't understand the love of God. It's not supposed to work this way. It's so disruptive. See, we think things should work in this like certain formula that then obligates God to respond to what we do, almost like we can hold God hostage by our own moralism. And if we do these things, then God will have to be good and respond to this, us in a certain way. But God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. You can't hold them hostage. You can't impose your will upon his will. You can't obligate him to do certain things. But this text is so, so disruptive to us. But here's what God's trying to communicate. Look at verse 11. And this is where we see the love of God. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who he calls. God is introducing this concept theologically that we call unconditional love. Do you know why you're a Christian? Because God just loves you. It's not because you were raised in the South. It's not because you were raised in a Christian home. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're more morally inclined. It's not because you're more enlightened. It's not because you figured it out. It's not because you're better than other people. It's just the unconditional love of God. And if it was not based on that, the, walk with me through this reasoning. If it wasn't based on the unconditional love of God, if somehow you could achieve, achieve your salvation, you could earn it, if that was possible, then you could lose it. And the beauty of the unconditional love of God is if God gives it to you, then there's nothing you can do about it. God just loves you. And you get to enjoy it. And it's unnerving and it's disruptive because nothing else in the world works this way. But it's been a theme of Paul all throughout his ministry. Matter of fact, one of my favorite passages in Ephesians chapter 2, he goes on this long diatribe. It's a run-on sentence, and finally he gets to the kind of the climax. There's no punctuation in the whole paragraph. He gets to the kind of climax, and he says, uh, in Greek, it's a charte essays this always minoi. It's this like exclamation, for it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, not by works. 
so that you can't boast and I can't boast that we're here because we're better people than the people who aren't here. That is taken from us and it forces us to sit under the foot of the cross and say, God, why, why me? Why would it ever be me? The grace of God is incredibly unnerving. And if it's not unnerving to you, you might not have looked at it long enough. Robert Kaplan says it this way, grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. Our lifelong certainty that somebody somewhere is keeping score and we're doing better than our neighbors so God must be good to us until that whole system in your mind collapses. Grace can't prevail. I have permission to tell this story. Uh, texted him last night at 11.30 and praise God he was still up and he texted me back and said, yeah, you can use that. Spent some time with a guy this week, a friend of mine, I love him. And... Uh, I didn't know much about his family of origin. And so I said, well, tell me how, I didn't know your dad. Um, tell me about your relationship with your father. And he said, well, I didn't know really my dad either. He was killed. And I said, he was killed. He said, I'm so sorry. Yeah, he was executed, not just killed. He was executed. Was he in prison? No, he wasn't in prison. They found him in the desert with his, uh, his hands duct taped behind him and a bullet through the back of his head. He was running with some people that were not very good people and somebody in the desert executed them. And then my mom married this guy who, I won't go into details, but he had every reason to throw Christianity out with the trash. Let's just put it that way. And this guy has not had the easiest life, but he's got this beautiful family. He's a business owner in town. He's a member of this church. And I said, you are like a, you're like the, a treasure of grace. Like, I, how, how did this happen? And he looked at me and he said, Andy, God is too good to me. Now think about that statement. Have you ever said, God's just too good to me? He had every right to say, you know what? This whole Christianity thing is a farce. You know what I've had to overcome? You know what I've had to do? You know I started this business. I put this new link in this family. You know all the things that I have done to make it happen for me. And he said, no, all of this has happened. And it's all because of the mercy and the unconditional love of God. God is too good to me. He's too good to me. That's the heart and understanding the love of God. And then with Pharaoh, we see the justice of God. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Uh, this word by no means is really translated anathema. Stop it. <laughs> Don't ever say that again. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says when he says, the Christian is the one who's learned how to shut his mouth. <laughs> Learn how to sit in God's presence and say, mm, I, I am outgunned right now. I'm just going to be quiet in your presence instead of always questioning you. He goes on to say, look, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, not on your effort, not on your morality, not on your exertion of what you need to do to earn it. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he gives this illustration of Pharaoh 
For scripture says of Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised him up. And if you remember, Pharaoh uh, was over Moses when Moses was trying to let my people go, right? And he's trying to leave. And there were ten plagues. And we've always wondered because it says in that scripture, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how could that be fair? Well, interestingly, if you study that, here's what you'll find. You'll find that there were the first five plagues. Every time after that, it said Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the next plague, six through ten, it says the Lord hardened his heart. And so there were all these opportunities uh, for Pharaoh to see it, for Pharaoh to get it, for Pharaoh to repent. And Pharaoh's heart kept being hardened. And so God hardening his heart is the reflection of Pharaoh himself by his free will self-hardening and rejecting God and all the signs that God had done. The hardening of uh, the heart is not this a capricious and nefarious act by God to a morally neutral agent. That's how we think about it. We think, oh, Pharaoh could go either way. He's just morally neutral, and God is so capricious and no, so nefarious and so mean to take this like morally neutral person and put him that way. No, no, that's not what happens at all. We see that again in John chapter 12, where in John chapter 12, Jesus says all of these signs and all of these wonders, because sometimes we think if God would just show us this, God did. And our hearts are still hardened. And then Jesus says at the end of that passage in John 12, they love the glory of man more than they love the glory of God. They just can't see it. And then in verse 18, I will have mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. So let's kind of go a little bit more to it. We've got about five minutes left. Let's go a little bit more to the point. And I know this is raising all kinds of questions in your mind, but... um, we have a lot of years of life together to wrestle with scripture so we can keep talking about it and keep figuring it out. Do you have free will? Yes, of course you do. Reformed theology has never denied that. My question for you is, does God have free will? Does your God have free will? Can God choose who he wants to choose? Or do you think somehow that your free will somehow limits what God can do? As I say to my kids, when you're in my home, we both have free will. Maggie, Kate, Daniel, y'all have free will. You you know what's right and what's wrong. You know where the boundary are. It's very clear. We've told you exactly what we want in this family. You have free will to operate in that however you want to, but I have free will too. And my free will is just a little bit more free than yours. And I can impose my will upon yours. But I can also allow you permissively to have your own will. I explain it this way in new members class. If you've been through new members class uh, since I've been teaching it, you've heard this before. But it's always good to get a reminder. God has two wills within him. He has uh, decretive and permissive. Or sometimes it's called secret and permissive. There's different theological terms. Don't let that distract you. But there is a decretive will of God and there is a permissive will of God. And here's how I explain it in the new members to help us understand it by analogy. Uh, My permissive will with God, with my kids, will allow my kids to do certain things within my wisdom So, for example, when Daniel was seven, he was sitting on the side of the couch, and I was throwing this Nerf football to him, and he'd reach up and catch it, and I'd say, 
hey, Daniel, your mom and I have talked. Uh, we don't like you sitting on the side of the couch. You're going to break the couch. You're going to do all this stuff. You're going to fall. Uh, Dad, no, no, I want to sit up here. I am keep throwing the ball. And I'm thinking I can make him come down. I can impose my will upon him. Or I can see how this plays out. I can be permissive and uh, see if he's going to be obedient or not. And so I threw a ball. I didn't intentionally threw it high. It just came out a little bit hot. He reached up, fell over right on the hardwood floors, immediately starts crying. And I went over there and pointed at him and said, see, I told you so. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) Who do you think I am? I picked him up. I said, I'm so sorry. Sorry for your pain. But you got to listen to your dad. You got to listen to your dad. The next week, kicking the soccer ball with him in the front yard, and I kicked one to him a a little bit too hard, hit a clump of grass. Uh, He tried to trap it, hit a shin instead, and bounced into the street. There's hedges by the right-hand side of our house. I can see from my perspective, street is this way. He's running this way. I can see the truck coming up, and I can see him running out to the street to get the ball. He can't see any of that. And I said, Daniel, stop. Didn't stop. Daniel, stop. Didn't stop. And now I go on to sprint because this is not something I'm going to allow be permissive. This is now my decretive will. I will stop him. And I grab him right at the last minute as the truck's coming up. The truck didn't see him. The truck all of a sudden swerved. I grab his little arm, throw him back into the yard. I kind of stumbled into the road after, and I impose my will upon him. That's what God does in salvation. To save us, God imposes his decretive saving will on us and grabs us and brings us back home. And he himself gets run over by the truck in the process. But what God doesn't do is sit on the sidewalk with all the neighborhood kids and throw them into the street while the cars are coming. Sometimes we think that's the version of God, but God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He longs to save his children and to bring them home, and that's his decretive and his permissive will. Now, I need to just move to some quick application. I know you're going to have more questions, but like I said last week, At Mission Road, we want to be a church that talks about real things and things that matter and things that are difficult and and sort through it. So let me just give you two points um, of application. Number one, humility, and the second one is hope. First of all, humility. Let me speak to you if you're not a believer, not a Christ follower uh, yet. A.W. Pink says it this way, a God whose will is resisted, whose designs can be frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, who possesses no title to deity, is far from being a fit object of worship and merits nothing but contempt. If you're not a believer, you want, you need a God that you can't control. You need a God who humbly you can bow to and not feel like you have to earn your way to them or somehow you can obligate them or hold him hostage. You need the God that you can bow to and in humility say, God, you're God and I'm not. And could it be, even this morning, that you're changing me and you're giving me a new heart and I'm going to bow to you and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to serve you. 
like the uh, desperate father in Mark chapter 9 who said about his son, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe that's your prayer this morning. I believe, but help my unbelief somehow. If you're a believer, let me say this, and I might go a little bit harder on you, uh, which is my bent, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, so I can go harder on you, because you know the difference here. If you understand this, this should make us as Christians the most humble people on the face of the planet. That's one of the shocking things about this past year for me is watching the amount of pride in Christians that makes me think from sometimes we've missed the whole thing. How could you walk with Jesus or understand unconditional love or the love of God for you? How could we understand that and not be the most humble people on the face of the planet, being willing to serve anybody that we come across and just to be able to stare again at the love of God and the wonder of it all and to be able to say, why me? Why ever? Why ever would you save me? From this northern family brought down to Rock Hill, why on God's green earth, Father, would you ever show me the love of God and not some of my neighbors? And every now and then we have to stand back like the tax collector in Luke chapter 19 and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Why would you ever show me this grace and the privilege and the honor it is to be able to live life together under the gospel banner flag and to love and to serve and to show forgiveness and mercy and grace to others. The greatest thing that we could ever be called is a Christian. And if we understand that, we won't be prideful because apart from me, as God says, you can do nothing. Luther says, nothing is not a little something. Apart from God's strength and power and mercy and grace in your life, you can do nothing. So Christians, let's be humble. I mean, humble. And then hope. Lastly, there's no foundation for comfort in the enjoyments of this life, but in the assurance that a wise and good God governs the world. That's William Law. Let me read it again. There's no foundation for comfort in the enjoyments in this life, but in the assurance that a wise and good God governs the world. Uh, sovereignty is a cause for hope because if God weren't sovereign, there's no reason we could come to him and ask for change. Look, non-believer and believer, if God can harden hearts, then here's the good news. He can also soften them. He can also answer prayers. He can also change us. He can impose his will upon us, which we need, so that we have the soft hearts of our Savior. As it says in Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart, and the new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. And I'll cause you to walk in my statues and obey my rules. And you'll dwell in that land I give you. And you'll be my people and I'll be your God. What a glorious vision of what life could be. You may wrestle with this. You may struggle with this. But I would say uh, wrestle and struggle with scripture. Uh, get in there. Figure it out. And once you do, you'll see it's not only biblical, but you'll see that it's also beautiful and humbling and hopeful. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now that you would guide us and direct us. These are um, glorious, 
but difficult topics. And we don't want to, for one second, think that we can take your place and judge you. Father, we don't for one second want to believe that you're not a God who's both simultaneously always, because of your character, loving and just, holy and kind, merciful and gracious. But these mysteries, as we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to you. We know when we're dealing with a God who is God, there's going to be things to us that are hard to understand because we're finite. And we don't have your perspective. And we're thankful that you impose in salvation, that you impose your will upon us because we would have never chosen you. Our hearts are too dark and sinful. And so thank you, Father, for pulling us back into our homes and being accursed and cut off and run over so that we might go free. Make us a congregation, I pray, that's hopeful and humble. And, and just as a group of people are enamored by the love of God for us and for others and who are willing to share and talk about it and love each other and serve and forgive each other because, Christ, that's what you've done for us. Thank you that you're sovereign. Without your sovereignty, there'd be no hope, be complete chaos. We'd, we'd never be assured that you have a plan and you're working towards it and we know that with sovereignty, it brings up all kinds of questions and concerns, but God, we're gonna, we're gonna let you be God and we're gonna be your children until one day you make all things known and wipe away every tear from our eyes. I give, give you now just a second, silently pray whatever you wanna pray, meet with the Lord.